Well, to keep your Bibles open there at Isaiah 66. This morning, as I usually do in the early service, I went downstairs to talk to the boys and girls, and I told them that when I arrived at church this morning, I was carrying two very large bags full of books. I asked them if they knew what books they were. One of them guessed that were, there were books about the Bible. I thought that was a good, that was a very good answer, uh, a good guess. Uh, and the other, the other who, who put their hand up said that they thought the books were about Isaiah. <laughs> now, I have a little thing to tell you. Those of you who have not been coming very long, we've been teaching through Isaiah for the last 82 weeks or something. And... Uh, <clears throat> with one or two breaks. And uh, right at the very beginning, there was a bit of a problem as to just exactly how we should name him. Is this Isaiah or Isaiah? Let me now tell you the secret. The secret is this, that in spite of all my protestations, Isaiah is the English pronunciation Isaiah is the Irish, Scottish, and American pronunciation. <laughs> Seriously. It was Isaiah I, I used growing up. So uh, with all of that carry on, uh, in the end, I was on the right side. But this morning, I may, I may still may. I was wondering whether this morning I should just go right through the sermon calling him Isaiah and really annoy you. But I, <laughs> I, I don't think that would be a good thing to do. Anyway, so Isaiah... The word is, is glad that I finished with his book. So, uh, well, it's now being consigned to history. But it's been a most blessed uh, communion, really, to, to spend uh, these years in this book. It kind of brings home to me the, the massive achievements of people like Dr. Boyce going through books of the Bible uh, at an extended period over many, many years. And uh, I, I wondered this morning what he must have felt like after John was over or Romans was over. After all those years, he must have felt a whole mixture of feelings, including that he had, uh, was moving out of communion with someone he had gotten to know, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul in one case and the Apostle John in the other, and now, for me, Isaiah the prophet. But as we come to the end of Isaiah, in many ways, his book has captured the story of the Bible. Because the Bible is a drama, there is a plot line to the Bible. It starts in a garden, as you know, with a broken covenant and a crime scene. Covenants are agreements, and there is a covenant there in the Garden of Eden between God and Adam and Eve. Covenants are personal as well as historical and legal agreements. So when a covenant is broken, a heart is broken, a law is broken. And the prospect of history, the movement forward into history, that is broken as well. And every human being that followed Adam and Eve has come into the world reprising the role of Adam and Eve and is themselves a covenant breaker. Every time we sin, we are voting with Adam and Eve as they did in the garden, and we're acknowledging by our sinning that we too are covenant breakers. And God who wrote the story, and God who made the covenant, is under no obligation to do anything about it. And yet the amazing good news of the Bible is that he has, that in fact God 
has preserved nature and history and culture and creatures and has put into place a redemptive strategy for the world. That strategy revolves around the second man, second Adam, second and last Adam, who comes to the rescue of his fallen image bearers. That's the Bible's big picture. And Isaiah's faithfully represented that as he has preached the gospel to us. We, we called it this at the beginning. It is the gospel according to Isaiah. He has this great movement in the book in which he first of all describes this character, this one who is coming who has divine origins and yet is born of a virgin, who has divine titles and yet can be called the son of David. When we get to chapter 40, we're told the one who's coming is in fact God. God is going to visit his people. We're on tiptoes by the end of chapter 40, waiting for God to turn up in Jerusalem. Instead, who turns up? A servant, the servant of the Lord, who comes as the true and faithful Israel to obey God where Israel had disobeyed God. And will ultimately die in the place of other covenant breakers in chapter 53. Well, that's the story of Isaiah. And now as we come towards the end, he's picking up the threads of the story so far and bringing us to the conclusion both of his prophecy and of human history. And it's interesting that as he does so, he should reintroduce the theme of worship the worship of God, because behind much of what he's said, as he's criticized Israel as the representative people of God of his day, and by projection has critiqued the church in every age, he has critiqued us for our idolatry, that is, for our functional idolatry, in replacing the one true and living God who's been revealed by a God of our imagination or a God of our rationalization or a God of our invention. That's part and parcel of Isaiah's critique of the church. Not just the world, but the church. And implicit in that is the way in which we think of God when we worship him. And so he begins in this in this chapter by reminding us that true worship is divinely decreed. True worship is divinely decreed. Look how he begins in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He begins by establishing that the God we worship, the God of the Bible, is like nothing else that we can imagine nothing else of which we have experience as creatures in the created order, that he stands apart from and above and over and outside of all reality of which we are conscious. That God by himself is not only infinite in size, immense in his being, but he is incomprehensible to our minds. Now, he needs to say this because, you see, there is an impulse within our hearts that always wants to make God understandable to ourselves or comprehensible to ourselves. And so right at the very beginning of any act of worship, 
right at the beginning of any introduction to Christian theology or understanding, we have to make this very concrete statement. God in himself, before there is anything outside of God, before there is any external reality, God in himself is incomprehensible to us. Nothing in him parallels anything else because God, as he is in himself, has nothing outside of himself to compare himself with. This is the great challenge that Isaiah brings in chapter 40 when he comes and he sa- God says to us, to what or to whom will you compare me? Unless it is firmly fixed in our minds that God as he is in himself is incomparable, incomprehensible, invisible, immortal, and all of these titles that describe him as being utterly different from us, then we will end up as Israel did, worshipping an idol, an imagined idol, a mind, an, an idol of the mind, if not an idol made up of molten metal or wood or stone. And so God does right at the very beginning. What he has done throughout this book is remind us right at the very beginning that he is utterly set apart from everything in the created order. We cannot project things back into the being of God. We cannot project backwards. You might be tempted this morning to think that God is a father like your father was. God is nothing like any earthly father was. He does not compare himself to any earthly father. He is God, the father of lights, in whom there is no variation, neither shadow caused by turning. He is apart from everything. Heaven is my throne, he says. And whereas elsewhere in the Bible, sometimes it's the Ark of the Covenant, Sometimes it's the temple. He says this is footstool. Here, Isaiah makes this absolute statement that, in fact, God is astride everything that we can imagine, the whole of the created order represented by the earth. And no sooner does he introduce himself than he begins to challenge his own people. What is this house you would build for me? He's talking there about a temple. He's talking there about a place where people can meet with God. And uh, that was always in the minds of the Jews, for example, when they lost Jerusalem and they lost the temple that was the cause of the grief that they felt, that now they had no place that they could worship God. When eventually they would return after the exile, they wanted to build a place where they could worship God. But God had never ordered them, never told them to build a temple. He gave permission for it, but he never told them to build a temple. But he permitted them to do so, and uh, there was always the temptation ever afterwards for them to think that God then was fixed in that one spot, that you had to be there in Jerusalem, you had to be on Mount Zion, you had to be in the temple in order to have an encounter with God. And there's a principle that lies, underlies this, of course. The principle that underlies this is uh, in the caught in that Latin phrase, ex opere operato, that, that our worship of God and our experience of God is determined uh, by virtue of the work performed. In other words, there are buttons you press 
in order to get God to respond to you. There are places you go, there are things you say, there are actions you perform. And by saying those things, performing those actions, going to those places, God is bound to turn up and God is bound to be there. And that's what God is challenging them in the, in the, at the end of verse 1, that he is not tied to any outward form or any geographical place. That's not to say, of course, <coughs> that God was not concerned about the temple. It's not to say that he hadn't instructed, the, that, he, that he had not, uh, after the temple was dedicated, come down in his glory and met with them there. But it is to say that God himself is not tied to any particular place. Well, throughout Isaiah, Isaiah has told us, pointing forward to the future, that although he had not built this place, he would build a place for himself. That there would in the latter days be a temple which he himself would manufacture and build. In fact, we read about this in, in Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. That is the place where people meet with God, he says, in the future, will be built by God and will be the, the absolute expression of God's glory. From our perspective, when Jesus came, you remember he went into the temple and he told the people in the temple that the building they were in was, was actually now obsolete and that if they destroyed the temple of his body in three days, he would raise it up from the dead. His body was the temple that the Father prepared for him. We read in one of the Psalms, while the Lord Jesus is coming into the world, he talks about the body that the Father has prepared for him as he comes <clears throat> to be incarnate in the world. He comes to take on a body in which he himself can be the magnet to the nations so that people come to God through him. So here we have this absolute statement at the beginning. What is this house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. God says everything in the universe has come to pass effortlessly. You see, God as he is before he made anything, God as he is in himself, doesn't do anything. There are no functions that he performs. There's no work that he does. No activities that he engages in. There is one being. Can you imagine that time before there's anything? There's only one being, the being of God. And in that one being, there is one substance, one essence, one godness, one will. And there is the full enjoyment of the Father and the Son in the love of the Holy Spirit. They don't have to exercise any effort when they will the world into existence. The Father speaks, the Word is heard, and everything happens. That's how the world begins in the Bible. Effortlessly, all these things came to be. We are meant to wonder and worship and wait before this great God. But there's a but in the middle of verse 2 that is so encouraging to us. Here's what God says. This is the person that he will deal with. But this is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Our Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, refers back to lots of the book of Isaiah. In fact, in many ways, the book of Isaiah is the script from which Jesus is operating in his earthly life, not only following the things it describes about the Messiah, servant, but also using the very language and concepts that Isaiah uses. And and this is one of them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we read, This is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord, to him who is poor, that is, to him who solely rests and relies on the Lord. Someone who recognizes that there is no one else to go to, nowhere else to run to, nothing else in which to trust but the Lord, and who recognize their spiritual poverty, who come, as it were, to God and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is the one to whom I will look. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty, those who are contrite in spirit, who recognize their inadequacy, who recognize that they have nothing to bargain with, who, who, are, who are contrite and mournful in their spirit. And above all, he says, those who submit to my word, who tremble at my word. God sets a high premium on how his people respond to his word. If we believe it to be the word of God, if we say words like the Bible is without error, inerrant, if we say words like the Bible is inspired, that is, it is God-breathed, if we say words like the word of God is found in the Bible, that the Bible, in fact, is the word of God, what are we saying? We're saying it's God that speaks in the Bible. It's God who has caused his word to be written and to be in our hands. And if it's God's word, you and I should tremble at doing any monkey business with the word of God. Whether we're by by addition, or subtraction, or reinvention. My dear friends, we, especially those of us who preach, have a great responsibility weighing upon us to tremble at the word of God. You know, it was the great char- charge that uh, Stephen, when you remember before his, his execution and martyrdom as he stands before the religious authorities, he uh, runs over, he, he gives us a, a biblical theology, really, of, of Israel and, the st- uh, and of their story. And he comes to that climatic point in, in his story when, when he says, uh, when he challenges them, which of the, which of the prophets... Did your fathers not persecute, he asks. And then he goes on to say this. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. They even killed Isaiah. Whom you have now betrayed. That is the righteous one that you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That was the serious charge that was laid against the Jews of Jesus' day. And it is a serious charge if in our day the Lord God of hosts should come to us and should say to the church today, 
that we have not kept the Word of God. It's a very serious thing. And, and this lies at the very heart, then, of the worship of God. It's the Word of God, he says, that, that, that describes, that captures, that expresses the heart of true worship. Now, he expounds on this in verses 3 and following. And he tells us not only is true worship divinely decreed, but he says true worship is counterintuitive. You would think, for example, that if you did all the things you find in the Bible, you tick off a little list of things, you take your ox, you kill it for sacrifice, you, or the lamb perhaps, or, or perhaps you bring a grain offering, verse 3, or, or a, a memorial offering of incense, and all of those things are found in them. You would think that, that, that that's good. You've ticked off the boxes, you've done what you could, and so on. And yet here's the third, in verse 3, there's another charge. The language is harsh. Surprising. He who slaughters the ox is like a, a man who kills, who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, who presents a grain offering is like one who offers pig's blood, unclean blood, who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, the most expensive incense, like one who blesses an idol. God says those things may tick the boxes. But I did not receive them from you. In fact, they were obnoxious to me, God says. Why? Well, because. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, no one listened. Here is the controversy God has with his people. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, no one listened. Is it possible to sit in church this morning and be among those people about whom God's speaking? Yes, it is. Is it possible to be one who stands up and says the creed? Yes, it is. Because it's to do with our heart. Look at verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. He's now speaking to true believers. And he's saying to true believers... Your brothers will hate you, and they'll cast you out for my name's sake. And they'll scorn, and they'll mock you. Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, they'll say. Here is mockery and scorn of the people of God as they talk about God's purposes for the future. Uh, let the Lord be glorified is probably a reference to the, the final day, to the day when the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The day when Christ will return. And we're familiar with this kind of mockery because the Apostle Peter talks about this in Second Peter chapter 3. He, he talks about the day when the Lord Jesus will come back again from heaven. And Peter says this, knowing that first of all, there will be scoffers come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing from the creation as they always have. In other words, there are people today, there were people that Isaiah foresaw, there are people that Peter predicted would come 
who are saying to the church today, where is the evidence that the Lord Jesus will come back again? Where is the evidence that, that history is going anywhere, that history is going anywhere, far less that history is going to that final denouement when Christ returns in power and glory? And they're mocking you. They're saying, let the Lord be glorified. See what you're talking about. Tell us when this is going to happen so that we can see your joy. This thing that you're rejoicing in. You're rejoicing in what the Lord has promised to do for us. Where is that? You meet Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. You're not getting any better. There may be some improvement in your behavior, some improvement in your knowledge and understanding and growth and so on. But actually, really, as you look over the course of history, has the church really got any better? You're justified sinners still. And where are are the signs that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to split the sky, rend the heavens and come down? And there's this mockery that goes around. And the prophet reminds us that that mockery is real. Well, true worship is counterintuitive because it means we go against the flow. We go against the flow in the world and in the church, according to, according to Isaiah. The, the church will mock us. Your brothers will mock you. But then thirdly, this true worship is divinely decreed and counterintuitive, but it is future proof. From verse 7, Isaiah is now focusing on the future. And he's talking about the church like a mother. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall a nation be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth, literally, in the Hebrew, a male child. In the Greek translation, this word is used in Revelation 12, verse 5, of the Messiah. But Isaiah just leaves it hanging there for us to get the interpretation when the time comes. But do you see this amazing thing that he's predicting? He's predicting a day when a people, the people of God, a land, a land for the people of God, a promised land, will be born in one day. What is he speaking about here? He's speaking about that day when out of heaven comes the new Jerusalem, the holy city, new Jerusalem, when it comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The church of God perfected. The new Zion in all its perfection comes from heaven. And in a day, in a, in a second, everything is made new. In a second, all things are new. Now, we see a forerunner of this on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, we have a first installment of that day when the Spirit falls and, and 3,000 people are converted and added to the church all at once and a new nation, a new covenant people are formed all at once. 
He's talking about the church and how God has had a church in the Old Covenant and that church continues today, the assembly of God's people. And he urges us to rejoice in the thought of this. Verse 10, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad in her. He's talking now about the new Jerusalem. All those who love her rejoice with her in joy. Those who love the church know this, that the church will win in the end. Those who love the people of God know that God has great purposes for them. Those who mourn over her, those who mourn over her depressed state at times, those who are longing for her glory to be revealed, rejoice with her, be glad in her. Why? Because in the end, all her failures will be resolved. All her, all her inadequacies will be taken away. Rejoice with Jerusalem that you may nurse, verse 11, and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. God has paints this picture of the church nourishing the people of God, nourishing them by the word and by the sacraments, strengthening them for their life and service here below, and ultimately satisfying and perfecting them. We should rejoice in that. We should rejoice in the idea that when Christ returns, holy city Jerusalem will return with him, will come down out of heaven with him. We should rejoice in the fact, as Peter tells us to do, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That day is coming. This is the end towards which history is moving. And in the meantime, it is the church that comforts Jerusalem. It comforts the people of God by the word of God. In verse 15, we come to the announcement of that coming. The Lord will come, he says. This is the Lord that we were expecting in the early part of this book, to come as the born son, the son that is given who will be born a child to a virgin, the Lord who is heralded in chapter 40, the Lord who is coming to bring glory to his people. This is the Lord who comes as the servant who will, after his service and after his death, be exalted back to the glory he had with the Father before the world was. You know, there are these two great pictures in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 6, we see the Lord Jesus Christ high and exalted. We see him there worshipped by the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. John says in John chapter 12, Isaiah saw his glory. The glory of the Son of God in his God's splendor before the creation of the world. Isaiah saw him, John says. He saw his glory. And then in the introduction to the, the passage that deals with the death of the servant, he who will be despised and rejected and will be done to death for the sins of his people in order that he might justify and put right with God many people. It says right at the very beginning, 
before it tells us about that awful fate, God says this time, God says about his servant, he will be high and lifted up and exalted. The same language as Isaiah 6. The one who was high, lifted up and exalted, will be high and lifted up and exalted once more after his work as a mediator is done. And here we're told the Lord, this Lord, the Lord Isaiah saw in chapter 6, will come. He will come in fire, the fire of judgment. And the next few verses underscore this. By fire, verse 16, he will, the Lord will enter into judgment. In the New Testament, in the book of Thessalonians, we read these words when the, in Second Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That is part and parcel of the second coming. When Christ returns, he comes to judge. He comes to judge the world. He comes to judge the worldly church. He comes in fire, the fire of judgment. But he also comes to gather his people. Here's how, here's how Paul puts it. The Lord himself shall descend with a shout of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. There will be a great gathering of people. Isaiah announces it here. I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory and I will set a sign among them. He's describing this glorious gathering of the end of history. A gathering that begins now. A gathering that begins now as he calls out of the nations Men and women, as he calls men and women from all across the world, from every culture and racial group, brings them into the family of God. His sign now is not the sign of the virgin birth that was mentioned earlier, but it's the sign of the Savior. The sign of the Savior, dead, buried, and risen. The risen Savior, the coming Lord. And he's gathering these people. We used to sing a a gospel chorus. What a gathering. What a gathering of the ransomed in that summer land of love. Here it is, the gathering of God's people being gathered from every tribe and nation, gathered to God, converted Jews and converted Gentiles. When the apostle Paul is writing in Ephesians, about the gathering of Gentiles and their being fellow heirs with Jews of the, of the salvation, common salvation. He calls it a mystery, a mystery, something that was hidden that is now revealed only by special revelation. But Isaiah, Isaiah gets to see it. He gets a little shot of it beforehand of this great gathering of Jews and Gentiles into the family of God. He started talking about it back in chapter 2. Early on in his ministry, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established and lifted up among the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. We see that beginning here. We see it beginning now as nation after nation. Men and women, 
embrace the gospel for themselves. That's been our goal, isn't it, with our missionary task, to get the gospel out? Round the corner, across the street, and around the world. That's the business of the church, to get the gospel out to the nations. And the nations have been hearing the gospel. Some of those nations have been coming and joining us here. And some of us have been going to the nations. And God is fulfilling this great, great vision of there being many brought into the kingdom. In verse 19, there's a reference to some of the nations that Isaiah was conscious of, Tarshish and Pool and Lud and Tubal and Javan and the coastlands far away. And it may very well be that uh, the Apostle Paul has some of these places in his mind when he goes about his great missionary journeys, these very places sure to take the gospel to as many of them as possible. Look at verse 20. And they will bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And they're coming in all, as Isaiah paints this picture, they're coming absolutely every conceivable way you can imagine. They're coming by taxi. They're coming by limousine. They're coming by train. They're coming by plane. They're coming by hot air balloon. They're coming on horses. They're coming, he, he just uses all the words he knows about modes of transport. They're getting to God whichever way they can. They're coming to God. What a great picture of the gathering of the nations at the end of time. So here's the sequence. God has a people. What characterizes them is this, that they are humble and contrite in spirit and they tremble at his word. Those are the real people of God. Christ is coming. The Lord is coming to judge the nations and to judge the worldly church. And God is, Christ is coming to gather the nations to himself at his second coming. And then, and then, verse 22, a new heaven's and a new earth that I make. He's already introduced this in the previous chapter, the new heavens. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered. We saw then that the foretaste of that is as he remakes people in the image of Christ, as he brings us to birth in Christ, so we become new creations. We saw that it applied to the resurrection of Jesus, who is the firstborn from the dead, uh, but here he's looking beyond that to this new thing, this new heavens and new earth, the universe refined, transformed, our future destiny. It's where we're going. It's our inheritance, a land, a place that will be ours for all eternity. This, uh, this book of Isaiah begins back in chapter 1 verse 2 with the heavens and earth and God's address to them. It ends with a new heaven and a new earth. And the mission of God has always been to bring the nations of the world into the light of the knowledge of Jesus the Messiah that they might share in this new heavens and new earth that God is going to bring to pass in Christ. There's a great reassurance in verses 22 and 23, and it's this, that this new creation is not going to pass away. 
Notice the emphasis here. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, permanently remain before me, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Here is the promise to Adam and Eve, fulfilled. Here is the promise to Abraham, fulfilled. All the nations of the earth being blessed. Here is the promise of Isaiah, that the Messiah would be a light to the nations, fulfilled. All fulfilled in the perfect servant of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our destiny, brothers and sisters. Isaiah ends where the Bible ends, with a new heavens, a new earth, a place for the believer to call home. But he ends with a solemn note, doesn't he? And remember, he's speaking in poetic language here. But I want you to notice his description of hell. The bodies of the men who've rebelled against me, their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah is an evangelist. He doesn't want you to forget that there is a, a hell to be spurned as well as a heaven to be gained. He doesn't want you to forget that the issue between believing and not believing, receiving Christ and not receiving Christ, resting in him and not resting on him, is not a matter that is inconsequential to you. And Isaiah the prophet would only be happy with me speaking to you if he knew that I was going to say at the very end of this great book that he is holding out before us two destinies. And that today, today your destiny can be sealed by whether or not you believe in the Lord he preached into your heart today, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you trust in him? Will you receive him? Will you rest on him? Will you? If so, we'll see you later at the gathering of the nations. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in your great grace, you who are the fount of blessing to your people and the giver of every good and perfect gift, who've been pleased to draw near to us in Christ and by the Spirit to enable us to know you through him, that you would please this morning hear our cry, that we would be ready for this great future. And though the end is not yet, to be ready for the end when it comes.
It may be at dawn when the day is awaking, when sunshine through darkness and shadow is breaking, that Jesus will come in the fullness of glory to receive from the world his own. O Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen.